This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, hi, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I'm your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Danny M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Molly Woodstock, a biracial journalist, audio producer, and equity consultant based in Portland, Oregon. They produce and host an award-winning weekly podcast called Gender Reveal and have been featured as a gender expert in the New York Times, NPR, and Washington Post, among other publications. Molly, Welcome to the show and congratulations on finally leveling up to gender expertise. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been billing myself as a gender detective for the last two or three years on my show, which is taken sarcastically from a Portlandia sketch. And Ah. I do worry that people think I'm truly the worst person. (laughs) I'm like running around trying to figure out what people's genders assigned at birth are. But no, I'm just trying to figure out what the heck gender is. I... Uh, you know, appreciate the clarification that you are not, you know, seeking to uh, investigate everyone's birth gender assignation. But I, I didn't think that that's what you were doing. So thank you for clarifying. But no, I mean, I didn't think you thought that. But my podcast is also called Gender Reveal, which, again, could easily be confused for the worst possible thing. So I like to introduce a lot of confusion into my life. My Twitter name is currently also Montucky Wood Snack, which is a playoff Montucky Cold Snacks, which is a beer in Montana. But apparently no one knows that and they think I have changed my name to Montucky because I'm trans. So again, just introducing a lot of confusion really you have early so on. much time and energy is what I'm getting out of this, Molly. And, and I'm excited <laughs> to channel some of that time and some of that energy towards uh, our, our, our problem writers in. So with yes. all of that said, I'm going to go ahead and read our very first letter, which is such a classic um, question of like dealing with queer workspaces, which is like, hey, since we're all queer, it's probably like wrong and oppressive of me to try to have a boundary, right? The answer mm-hmm. to which luckily is no. Um, but the subject is I can't unsee it. Dear Prudence, I work for an LGBTQ community center, and I'm queer myself. My work involves sex education and positivity, and I can talk about things that others might see as taboo in their work settings. Even with this, I feel there are important boundaries to uphold in a workplace, and my boss recently crossed a boundary that I can't unsee. On a recent work trip, I saw that he was looking at pornographic videos and images while we were on an airplane together. They don't know I saw anything, and I think they assumed no one could see them. I now feel awkward around them, and I don't know what to do next. I don't want to take this to HR, and I don't feel like I'm unsafe at work. I also really don't want to have to talk to them about it. Should I just ignore it? Do I need to say something so they are more aware of their actions? Am I overreacting by even feeling awkward? I think you nailed this before you read the question in that I don't think that any of the first few sentences truly matter to the substance 
of the question, it's always good to have context. Uh But just because you work in an LGBTQ center, just because you're queer, just because you work in sex education and positivity doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have a boundary around your boss or a boundary around what's appropriate in a workplace setting or what's appropriate on an airplane even more specifically. Because I can imagine a world in which your boss is looking at something that would be considered not safe for work in most workplaces, but because of the nature of the work you do, it could be relevant. That happens as a journalist sometimes, actually. But if you're on an airplane, I think generally the standards are pretty standard. Right. I mean, like, I I don't want to make like a ruling against like everything at all times. But yeah, generally speaking, I think it's fine to say you should assume that you cannot get away with watching pornography covertly on an airplane because it's full of other people who can't leave. Like, unless you're in one of those like incredible first class uh, like setups that turn into like a bed and like a, a privacy center. But I'm guessing if you two work at a LGBT community center, you you don't get to fly in those setups. So yeah, um, no, you are not overreacting by even feeling awkward, regardless of whether or not this was pornography that your boss was viewing for like the general purposes of pornography or whether or not it was in some way work related. They should have waited until they weren't on a plane. Totally, totally reasonable thing to need a person to do. That said, so your, your feelings make a ton of sense. I would feel uncomfortable too. Um, it's it's not cool. If you don't want to take this to HR, you don't want to have to talk to your boss about it, I, I do think you, you may have to do one of those things. Again, you don't have to. You're allowed not to. But I think it would be a good idea. If you have an HR department and and they're generally speaking like decent at their jobs, I think you would be able to go and say like, I don't feel unsafe at work, but this happened on a plane. It made me uncomfortable. I would like someone from HR to talk to, you know, said boss and just reiterate that's not appropriate and they shouldn't do that again. That's the kind of conversation HR is really equipped to have. They will want to have that conversation with your boss because that potentially would like make the company or the the organization liable if in future someone made similar complaints. So I think this is one of those things that HR would actually be pretty quick to say, yeah, we, we're on your side here. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. My instincts are a little bit different than yours, which is just that my strong feeling is in a workplace situation in which someone is feeling uncomfortable with something that a coworker, especially a boss, is doing. It is up to them to assess what will make them feel most comfortable long term. Right. And I can see a situation in which their fear of retaliation or even just awkwardness outweighs their willingness to bring this up in any way. And I want to respect that, especially if you're a marginalized person who doesn't have their choice of employment in which your marginalization is not a hindrance. You know, if you work at an LGBTQ community center, you could be queer or trans and it can be hard to find a job where you get to be openly queer and trans. And if this person really feels like bringing this up would threaten their job, I don't want to tell them that they have to do it anyway. Because I think I believe in everyone's right to assess what's appropriate for them. But if they do sure. feel awkward about around this person and it's not going away, then yeah, you can reach out to HR if that's someone that you trust. It really depends, I think, what your dynamic with your bosses, how big your company is, what your vibe is. I've had bosses where we were very close and I could have sent them a text that was like, hey, I saw your screen on the airplane 
that's not appropriate and that would be fine. I have bosses in which I would absolutely need to go to HR and have a sort of formal complaint around them. And I trust this person to feel out what sort of communication is most appropriate based on their situation. But this is coming from someone who has only ever had really negative experiences with HR. And so I'm a little biased in this department. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, I I think the only reason that it feels like HR is a pretty straightforward answer here is because this is a potentially like this is a potential liability for the company. And those tend to like something as uh, as big as like watching pornography on an airplane on what sounds like a work trip. But. Yeah, absolutely. If if the letter, I th- I tend to think people usually tend to include the details of like, I'm really like people get fired at my job a lot for lesser things than this, or I'm I'm worried about retaliation. I think they would have included that. But yes, of course, as always, uh, you know, letter writers are free to ignore my advice. Yeah, I I do think in this situation, it it would be really uncomfortable for you to have to have this conversation with your boss. And so I think again, that's part of why it's just helpful that. to go through HR here because no one wants to have to say like, hey, boss, I saw you watching porn. Like, it's just nice to be able to triangulate that conversation. And you you shouldn't have to be the one saying this to your boss. And it should just be an incredibly straightforward. Don't do this again. Just because you're all queer or you talk about sex education doesn't mean that like all bets are off and there are no rules or things that you can kind of expect in terms of a professional environment. And it's just fine. Your your boss will not suffer any undue hardship by having to wait to look at pornography until after the plane has landed. That's true. And that's a really good point that sometimes folks confuse sex positivity with always thinking that all sex is appropriate at all times and all right. sex-related content is appropriate at all times. And you can never have any boundaries around sexual content or you're not sex positive. And I think that is a really great point. Yeah. All right, I think we can leave this one in the past, and I would love it if you would read this next one. Yeah, absolutely. So this subject is, can no longer ignore racist family. And it says, Dear Prudence, I recently had to call out my aunt on some racist content she shared online. The info was clearly a hoax. I pointed this out and respectfully requested that she remove it. She doubled down, stating that it might be untrue, but that she, quote, endorsed the sentiment. This isn't the first time she shared racist and homophobic material, but it's the first time I've called her on it, parentheses, to my shame, I'm trying to change this. My mother, her sister, supported my actions, but told me she's tried to take my aunt on many times over the years and that my aunt will never change. I resolved to have no further contact with my aunt. My issue is that my mother is organizing a family event in a couple of weeks for a pregnant cousin who is visiting from interstate. I asked mom if Aunt Racist is going to be there, and she said yes, and that it was up to me to decide if my husband, daughter, and I attend or not. I'm not sure what to do. I don't want to spend time with Aunt Racist, but I also don't want to miss every family event because of this. I just returned home after living interstate myself, so I've already missed a lot of family occasions. I also don't want to go and have it be awkward or embarrassing for my mom or distract attention from my cousin by either having strained silence or starting round two of the argument at the event. I'd rather sit this one out. I'm sure Aunt Racist won't feel she has to stay away from this or any future occasions as she's gotten away with it so many times in the past, and I suspect she's already playing the victim. Quote, you can't say anything these days without offending someone, etc. Prudy, will I ever get to spend time with my extended family again? How do I navigate this? So, I think part of the problem of what this letter writer is dealing with is it 
sounds like the rest of your family um, has made a pretty regular habit out of either agreeing with your aunt's racism, overlooking your aunt's racism, organizing the social structure of the family to facilitate her racism. And so I think part of the fear here is not just like, if I go up against aunt racist, she's meaner than me and and might win. It's also, I might find out just how much the rest of my family kind of agrees with her um, and, and how much they will view me as the problem if I try to draw a line. Was that your read here? That's interesting. I think that's a very useful read. Now that you say it, it makes a lot of sense. I was looking at the part where they said that they wanted to sit this one out, which I think is totally appropriate. And then I was thinking about from there, what could they do to make sure that they could see their family again? And my thought was, well, why don't you go talk to your family and Mm -hmm. say, here's why I don't want to be around this person. And my hope would be that those folks would agree and say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. I'm so proud of you for drawing this boundary. Let us all draw this boundary. But realistically, it is possible and indeed probable that they'll say, you're being unreasonable. You're asking too much. You're a snowflake, whatever. And right. in which in which case, uh, you would, yes, may want to draw boundaries around not just your racist aunt, but around all of these family members and the way that you interact with all of them. And I can understand how painful that could be. I was coming at it sort of from the mentality of, well, at least you'll have clarity and you'll know where everyone stands. But you're totally right that this letter writer could actually be trying to avoid the pain of realizing where everyone stands. Yes. Yeah. And I think a a strategic choice that I were made if I were you, um, is to present it, like, especially to your mom, um, as like, hey, mom, good news. Like, you know how for years you've, I mean, supposedly, don't say supposedly, but I'm curious, (laughs) like, what taking on her sister has meant for her. But like, you know how for years it was just you and you've realized she's never going to change? Guess what? It's not just you by yourself anymore. I'm with you. And I'm actually going to take it a step further than just saying stuff when she says something awful. I'm trying a really hard fucking boundary. I'm going to make it really clear that I think her commitment to vicious racism uh, is super fucked up and that I'm not willing to be in a room with her anymore until and unless she like changes the orientation of her heart. If you feel like joining me, like, you know, there's room on this team. And that at least frames it in such a way that your mom would have to really own the weaseliness of not joining you there, uh, of having to say like, oh man, yeah, I guess, um, uh, you know, I've tried, but but like really trying, that sounds hard. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that because she'll never change, my only option is to, uh, you know, go along with that. Like, if she really will never change, if you really do believe that your sister is, like, irredeemably racist, that to me suggests you should not hang out with your sister. And so if she makes that other choice, then I think it will it will at least um, expose the motivations behind her decision, which are you actually didn't really care that much if she changed. Or rather, you prioritize other things more highly than you prioritize uh, her disavowing racism. That's hard. I, I realize that that may feel really hard and really painful. But I, again, as you said, Molly, I think that's just the gift of clarity that you have here. Like this is a woman who's like, yeah, I guess it was a hoax, but I still abide by the racist sentiment that animated it. Uh, that's that's a pretty 
pretty bright line, I think. Um, and I, I don't think that it's distracting to say, I'm not going to be around her after this. Certainly, you don't have to like send out, you know, cards or like storm out of the middle of an, an ex-family gathering and say, this is it. I'm never coming back. But I actually think it's really fine and appropriate to say I'm no longer willing to be in a room with her. And that's why, you know, I'd love to see you for coffee, cousin, or I'd love to get together with you, you know, other aunt for a, a dinner sometime soon. But um, I'm done making her racism comfortable and easy for her. Right. I actually think it really depends on the identity of this letter writer, because this person says that they've only ever called her on it literally one time. And now their instinct is to remove themselves from all further conversations with this aunt. And I would like to know this person's identity because as a queer, trans, biracial person with a lot of white, straight, cis relatives, if that's something I was experiencing, yes, I would probably want to that is sort of something I experienced. But if that was something I was experiencing and I felt so uncomfortable around it, then I wanted to completely remove myself. Then I would feel like that's a valid choice as a person who is marginalized in the very ways that this person is attacking. But if this is a straight cis white person and they tried to stand up to their aunt one time and it didn't go perfectly and now they're just going to opt out of ever fighting it again, that actually feels really cowardly to me. I think it is your role as an ally to keep fighting is a strong word, but sort of metaphorically fighting against your aunt and against your other family members. If you see yourself as a voice against racism, as a voice against homophobia, why are you only trying one time and then opting out of ever having that conversation again? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's absolutely room for more conversations. It, it may be that your aunt is closed down and won't have those fights, at, at which point I wouldn't say, like, show up at her house, demand that she talk to you, refuse right. to let her walk away. But I do think that there's real opportunity for you to have multiple and uncomfortable follow-up conversations with the members of your family who claim not to share her racism, but who apparently, you know, everyone who's not your mom has kind of let it slide. Um and to really push them to stop letting it slide. I think that's where you're going to be the most able to make a difference. And that's where there's enough receptivity that I think, uh, as you said, I think you should pursue follow-up conversations of like, here's all the racist shit she said in front of us. Here's what happened the last time that I actually tried to talk to her about it. And she just let me know, like, no, I love this racist fantasy. I don't care if it's true or not. It's really important to me to propagate it. I, you know, I feel sick to my stomach when I think about that. I think that's nightmarish. I think that's horrifying. You know, what do you want to do about it as a family? How do we want to deal with this? And if their answer is, I'd like to ignore it so I can enjoy my baby shower, I think you should argue with them. Totally. I completely agree that that's where the value is. I don't think you're going to change your aunt's mind on anything, but I think modeling disrupting this behavior, modeling being an active bystander to the other people in your family and the other people in whatever spaces you're in, even if that's online, I think that can be really valuable. Yeah. And I think it's valuable for two reasons. Like, yes, I, I agree. It's very unlikely that she's going to change anytime soon. It's also not impossible, but I think that change would have to come at the expense of real social costs. Like she would have to lose a lot, I think, in terms of family um, approval. Uh, and, and so in order for there to be any room for her to change, I think she needs to feel some consequences first. Um, but then, yeah, secondarily, like as a family and as a group, I think it would be important to say, is that the kind of speech and behavior that we want to co-sign and tolerate? Because we have an opportunity to say, you know, 
no. <laughs> um, so those are those are kind of two different reasons why I think it's valuable, even if she never changes. There's still value in it. Absolutely. Oof. Okay, this next one, there's a lot going on here. I feel mm-hmm. a lot of sympathy for both this letter writer and also for their friend. Um, I think it's my turn to read, so uh, I'll yes. go ahead and take this one. The subject is friend with serious hygiene trouble. Dear Prudence, I have a friend, Mark, who has serious problems with hygiene. He always smells as if he hasn't showered or washed his clothes in days. His car is full of trash. His home is even worse. He lets his cat and his dog go to the bathroom all over the house and doesn't clean it up. His dog has destroyed all of his furniture, including his mattress, so he currently sleeps on the floor. There are dead mice in his home. We really want to help him address these issues, but we aren't sure how we can help. We aren't sure why he's allowed things to get this bad, as he has a stable job and a solid group of friends, but we know he had a rough home life growing up. We think he might suffer from depression and cope with alcohol. He hasn't allowed his friends to assist him in getting his home and life in order. We've only mildly broached the subject because we are trying to be sensitive, but we're all very concerned and we want to take action. Do you have any advice? So this one is, I I can absolutely understand why you have worried about um, sensitivity and I I can tell that you care a lot about him and I think uh, it's hard because there are, only so many resources that are available and helpful to people who are struggling in such a way. And I certainly understand why you wouldn't want to like um, do something that would take away his ability to choose. But I also just want to acknowledge between the ammonia from like lots and lots of cat piss around the house and the possible like illnesses he could pick up from dead rodents in the house, possibly getting into his food. There are some health concerns here that I think it's important to take really seriously. It's not just the like, it seems like an uncomfortable place to stay for him. But, you know, somewhere in between his life is in imminent danger and you need to treat this like a a 911 emergency right now versus, hey, he's our friend, but he's an adult. We got to let him make our own decisions. I think this falls somewhere in the middle and that's often complicated to parse. Molly, do you have any thoughts here about what you think is the most important thing to bear in mind or the sort of priorities this group should have? Yeah, I want to agree with you that this question really stood out to me and that I feel like the majority of these questions are about social norms and politeness and etiquette and social relationships. And this is really about safety. So for me, the first step in my mind was to figure out if there is a way to remove his animals from the situation temporarily. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that without his consent, but if there's a way to gently convince him to let someone else foster those animals just so that they are in a safe space because like you said there are real health and safety concerns not just for him but also for his animals and they're not consenting to this this isn't how they're trying to live and that really does seem like a neglectful situation that they're in and so that's what stood out to me just as a first step Mm -hmm. before dialing down into how to help this human being who's clearly really, really struggling. And this is a question where I feel like I'm out of my depth as a person who is not a mental health professional, because this does seem sort of beyond, well, have you considered talking to HR or have you considered talking to your aunt? It's more like, can you get some sort of professional help involved for your friend again in like the most consenting way possible? I think that's such a good point. Um, I I think that animals are kind of like 
not like the number one priority, but but in the sense of like that's something you can immediately try to address. Um, and and I agree that you know I think it will help if maybe two of you approach him about this together, not maybe the whole group at once, because I think that could maybe feel overwhelming, but more than just one person. So it's clear that you're coming to him as a group who loves him. Um, I imagine if he's depressed, if he's medicating with alcohol, the idea of not having his pets in the house with him would be quite painful. Um, So I think offering to maybe even just take them to the vet on his behalf and stressing again, like, They could be getting ill in a way that you're not able to see, and I know that you want them close to you, but I also know that you want them to be healthy and well, and I'm worried about their well-being, and to maybe come in with a plan like, we're willing to take your dog and cat right now to the vet, and also maybe this other friend is willing to take them in for a couple of weeks to kind of go in with, not like, we've decided the next five things you have to do, and we've already made those appointments, but to really stress, we're worried about your animal's well-being, we're worried about your well-being, Um, The way that you're living right now, you do not have to live this way and in a way that is hopefully as non-shaming as possible. Like we're we don't want you to have to live this way. This is not a way you should have to live. This is unhealthy and it's painful and and you deserve better and we want to be able to help you to get better. I I hope that he would be receptive to that. I think as long as you express to him how much you care about him and how much help is available, I'm not too worried that you'll come across as dismissive or cold or unsympathetic. You sound deeply sympathetic. And I think previously you have erred on the side of not saying enough or saying something too gently. So I'm not really worried that you're going to overcorrect now. And, And I don't say that to say like, oh man, you've really fucked up. Like I get that this is a situation you don't feel prepared for. But um, I would maybe if your city has a non-emergency mental health line, not to call and to like set up a wellness check, but to ask like, if I were dealing with a person in this situation, what resources would be available to them so that you can again present to him like, hey, there's like this clinic that offers like mental health treatment at a sliding scale. If you need help, like getting into alcohol recovery, like here are some of the ways that we could help you do that. Um, here are things that we're willing to do as your friends in terms of like helping to call exterminators and and getting some of your stuff cleaned out. Will you be willing to accept any of this help from us? I think is is the first move that you w- would want to make. I think that everything you said is spot on. I'm also curious the times or time when this person and their friends has tried to broach the subject whether the message they're getting back is, I know this is a problem, but I'm dealing with it, or I don't know this is a problem because those are actually two different states of mind. And I think that there are different ways to go around unpacking the layers of shame or the layers of denial that are around this issue, depending on sort of what front this person is putting on or whether they're putting on a front or whether they're just in a space where they truly have devolved to the point where they don't see this as the health crisis that it is, because no matter what, this person deserves a lot of compassion, but there are sort of different angles that you can take with this compassion in order to be able to reach them more successfully, depending on what is bringing them to this place in the first place. And also, I'm not saying that this friend needs to do that work. It is very possible that a professional needs to be doing this work. Right. Yeah. And I think all this is just good stuff to bear in mind. Um, You know, he may be defensive at first, and I think it's okay to be like compassionate and loving in those moments and to also 
while being compassionate to challenge, you know, if he says like, it's not that bad or like, I had a really rough home life, you can just kind of stress like, I hear all that and I just need you to know that like, this is not a way that a human person should have to live. Um, and and it's not, you know, it's, it can be hard, I think, to say to someone you care about, this is not normal because it worries. It sounds like you're saying like, you're not normal or like you're bad. But I, I just think it's really important to stress that like, this is not um this is not good for him. This isn't like, well, adults make decisions. I mean, he, they do make decisions. And at a certain point, I, I do think even in this case, persuasion, encouragement, regular check-ins are a better way to go than um, if you don't do this, I'm going to you know, call 911. Um, I, I think the strongest intervention that I would recommend is if he refused to do anything and you noticed that his pets were getting really sick. I think at that point to say... I'm considering calling animal control because at this point you're not able to take care of them. That would be, I think, the strongest intervention I would recommend against his consent. And even then, I would only do that after you'd had multiple conversations and only if it was clear that the animals were suffering, Um, which is a hard line to draw because I also understand that it's really hard to watch someone sleep on the floor with dead mice. And if you ultimately decide that things are getting worse, uh, you know, you might want to try to contact his family if he has an okay relationship well you said he had a rough life growing up so maybe that's actually a really bad avenue strike that one um but it is just hard because like oftentimes calling 911 doesn't help with a chronic mental health crisis like this right so i i I just i I think that the the strategies that are going to be the most helpful will involve doing research offering support coming up with a plan of what you can help him do and offering to do it regularly checking in avoiding being so sensitive that you make it sound like, hey, did you ever feel like it? It doesn't really matter one way or the other. No biggie. Um, That's going to be the things that will be the most helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think you really nailed that one. It's almost like you do this professionally. Well, and that was really helpful about the animals too, because I was just so lost in the weeds of the overall picture that I think I lost of for a minute. Like, right, the animals didn't create this situation. They can't consent in the way that he can kind of. but they have less hard. autonomy to yeah. fix the situation. Right. And and just, to, um, again, I feel for all of you. I, I know that he's not doing this because it's fun, you know, like he's doing right. this because he's suffering a lot. And I know that you love him. So I, I just I hope to hear from you. Please write back. Let us know how those conversations go. Assume that it will be more than one conversation. Assume that it will take a lot of time and communal work as a group for him to um, – open up about this. So so if if one original conversation doesn't go well, you know, give it a couple of days and then try again. Absolutely. Is it my turn to read? It is. Excellent. This says, subject, my ex's brothers. Dear Prudence, I am 21. My girlfriend broke up with me last year, then moved away. She had two younger brothers, aged 17 and 11. They are not getting along with their stepdad, so often they will stay with me until their mom gets home. I work early shifts. My roommates work late. We genuinely just hang out and play video games. The older one has asked about maybe moving in once he has turned 18 since his stepdad has made threats about kicking him out. I told him, maybe. My ex has reached out to me and asked me to stop hanging out with her brother so much. She called it creepy and said I needed to stop trying to stay in her life and that it was obsessive. I told her she wasn't the center of the universe and her brothers were having a bad time with their stepdad. She wasn't here, so someone needed to step up. 
She got angry and said she was a good big sister. I told her she needed to deal and hung up. I have gotten some pushback from mutual friends that I am out of line or warnings because it is weird to have an 11-year-old over. We just sit around and play video games. What should I do? Um... I, one thing I do wish I like I my inclination here is to say you're you're doing a kind thing um, and it's unfortunate that the kid's mom is like unavailable enough that she's either like not aware of the way that her step or that her new partner is treating her kids or she's just kind of decided to abdicate the responsibility there. But I, I do wish I knew like are you otherwise in much contact with your ex? Have you like tried more than once to get back together like because if not not that i think like oh my gosh she must be stalking her but i i just wonder like either she's totally um uh reacting inappropriately to what's really like just generous of you or i i I wonder if if you had been kind of reaching out to her maybe more than she wanted you to and then this happened I, I could maybe then understand why she felt like it might potentially be an attempt to get her attention. But maybe that's like unfair speculation. I feel like you would maybe have said, yes, I've been calling her a lot, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think Do you think I'm trying to read too much into that? No, I think that that's actually a really important variable that we don't have is if this person really, 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 really digs down deeply. Is there any part of this that you are doing in order to stay connected to your ex? Or whether that's out of spite, whether that's out of genuine care and a want for connection, is there anything about this that is really more about your ex than it is about her siblings? And if not, then I am so sorry that you're being so misunderstood. And I have a lot of compassion for someone who is being misunderstood in that way. That's really, really difficult when everyone is reading malice or negative intent into your genuinely helpful behavior. But at the same time, I also understand the way that this ex is feeling because I have observed in my life a really, really extensive pattern of folks who, when they are broken up with, they go after that person's friends and that person's family and try to stay connected to that person through that person's friends and family. So an example would be someone who broke up with an abusive ex and that abusive ex stayed friends with her parents. And like, obviously she was very uncomfortable with the fact that her abusive ex was still hanging Mm. out at her house with her parents. No one would want that. I'm not saying this person is abusive. I'm saying there's a spectrum of what's appropriate. And what I think makes this more complicated even is that these are kids. And so I can't give them the same, well, we're all adults and everyone gets to choose who to be friends with that I would, even if everyone involved was an adult. And so I just think that there's too many variables in this situation for me to really have clear advice. One thing that I would suggest, and maybe this is a terrible idea, but my instinct would to be would be to see if you could get both of the kids and the letter writer and the ex to have a conversation together. Mm. Because I would really love to hear what the kids think about this and if the kids talking to their sister would be helpful or just having everyone bounce their actual feelings off of each other instead of everyone assuming everyone else's intent yeah i think okay i'm gonna assume 
just for the purposes of trying to give clear advice for like my last take. I'm going to assume that the letter writer has not been like having a hard time letting go of the end of that relationship because there's nothing in the letter that makes me think that that's the case. Um, So I'll just assume it was like not a great breakup, but you haven't been like trying to win her back and she's just uh, totally misreading the situation or like being territorial or maybe lashing out because she feels guilty that she's not there to help her brothers and you are whatever. Um, and, and you know, it, it can be inherently kind of weird if your siblings uh, remain close with an ex. I, mm-hmm. I, I get that it's weird. But anyways, all of which is to say, I think the, the most important thing to do is to talk over with your roommates whether or not you would be able to accommodate another roommate um, so that you can give the 17-year-old a clear answer. Because if you're not able to um, offer him a spot in the house, I think it's really helpful to be clear so that he can start making alternate arrangements for where he's going to go when he turns 18. So have that conversation with the other people in the house. Be realistic about uh, how much space there is, how much rent you pay, you know, what the terms of your lease are, whether or not you all are willing to, to take this kid in. Um, and then, you know, whenever you have that figured out, let him know one way or the other. So you're not just saying like, maybe, maybe, maybe. Because, you know, if you're like, I'm sorry, we can't let you move in. But, you know, you're, you're always welcome to come over and play video games in the afternoons. Like that's that's a great thing to be able to offer him. And that's kind of you. And I also think that it's I, I don't think it's inherently weird that he brings his kid brother along. I think it's, again, kind of you to to let him hang out when he doesn't have a lot of other places to go. He's 11. It's not like he can drive over to his friends' houses. Like, I, I think it's very good of his older brother to, to keep him around. Um, so beyond that. Maybe after a little time has passed, you can like send a quick text to your ex that's just like, hey, I'm sorry that last conversation got really heated. I want to make it really clear that this is not anything I'm doing to try to attract your attention or to relitigate our breakup. I'm just genuinely worried about these kids and I care about them and they're having a really hard time at home. Um, I hope we can, you know, if nothing else, just like quietly in our own ways try to be there for your brothers um and i will not try to like reach out to you or or talk to you about them um hope you're well something like that i think but again giving her a little time so that and then really not trying to follow up on that one or to say like did you get it does it sound good to you like really honoring your word afterwards of just like she doesn't want to hear from me we won't talk um i think that's my best advice there that's all i got yeah i have one more Thing, which is that if for some reason you do decide that you can't have these kids in your life anymore in the same way or it's not appropriate or it just doesn't work in your life with your roommates, I would suggest trying to help them find resources so that when this kid does turn 18, he does have an option that's not you. And also separately from that, trying to be really careful about the language that you use about your ex around these kids. And the reason that I say both of those things is because it sounds like these are already, children of divorce are already having a really hard time. And the last thing they need is to feel like they're in the middle of another breakup between two sort of parental figures. And so if you can be careful about the language you use and not say, oh, I can't be around you anymore because your sister says I can't, or, oh, like you can't move in with me because your sister said it wasn't appropriate. Uh, And to just show them a lot of care and figure out ways so that if you're not the person providing care because it's not appropriate or you don't have the bandwidth, that they are still receiving care and they're still feeling care from you and they don't feel like they're just being torn apart again. So, Uh, I think it's uh, my turn to take us home. Uh, The subject is what to do when a teenager shows up at your door asking for help. Dear Prudence, 
My boyfriend and I live in a large apartment complex with all kinds of tenants, from young couples like us to families and beyond. I love that, like beyond, like more than families. Um, On Sunday night around 10 p.m., a girl knocked on our door and asked to use our phone. She seemed distressed and said she had been kicked out of her home in the complex and apparently had her phone taken away. I needed to call a friend to ask if she could spend the night with them. I let her in, and she used the bathroom and called the friend, only to be turned down. She was hesitant to tell us where she lived in the complex, and I didn't quite get to asking why she was kicked out, but she told me she was 13, and she was only wearing a hoodie and track pants on a cold night. I offered her water and and food, but she turned it down. She apologized profusely for the interruption in our night and wound up deciding to try and stay with another friend who she knew lived at the complex. We haven't seen her since. I didn't even get her name. Since then, my boyfriend and I have been racked with concern. We live on the third floor of our building, so how many doors did she knock on before ours? Was she scamming us in some way? Why didn't she immediately go to the friend in the complex that she knew for help? What could she have done that was bad enough to warrant being cast out without a phone on a cold night? In our minds, the answer to that last one is nothing, considering her age. Alongside all these questions, I feel anger at her parents for putting her in that position. My question to you is, what could we have done differently? What should we have done differently? So... I, I, uh, I, I'll I open it up to you after this, but my, my first thing is I would like to loudly reiterate your point, which is that there's nothing a 13-year-old can do that merits being thrown out of the house on a cold night. I don't care how, like, she could have done something horrifying and awful, and still her parents would have a responsibility to care for and shelter her um, if they needed to, uh, you know, make other arrangements for a place for her to live or to get her treatment that she could not receive at home or to make sure that she experienced age-appropriate consequences for whatever crime she could have committed. All of those are things you can do without throwing a child out into the street in the middle of the night. So the answer to that question is like nothing, fucking nothing could she have done to deserve that. Yeah, I 100% agree. My first instinct as a homosexual is like, oh, this kid's queer. And obviously there's no actual way to know that, but my impulse when I hear that this child was kicked out by her parents is definitely not, oh, what did she do wrong? It is, oh, her parents are being unreasonable in some really horrifying way. Right. And and, and frankly, like, I'm a little bit worried that you you've gone there, like whether they're just abusive, whether she's being sexually harassed at home and objected to it, right. um, whether she's queer, whether she's, like, whatever's going on, like, I, I think you have seen an abused and neglected child. Um, and so to even spend enough time thinking, like, boy, I wonder what she did to deserve it, I, I just find that very concerning. Yeah, this comes from a really personal place for me, but it's at the end of the podcast, so you deserve it, I guess, if you made it this far. But, like, this reminds me so much of something I have literally worked on in therapy before. Like, oh, when I was kicked out of a space as a child, did I deserve it? Oh, no, I didn't deserve it, (laughs) you know? And so, like, even having these adults question at all, did she deserve it, like, makes me tense up. And I'm just like, no, she didn't deserve it. She's a kid. She's a kid. She's a kid. Please talk to my therapist about it. (laughs) Yeah. So I I would just say, like, let go of that one. Really let go of that one. I I think that's going to be pretty crucial. Right. And that goes along with asking if it's a scam or asking why didn't she go to this friend? Like, we don't need to analyze all of her decisions that we know literally nothing about. I feel really safe saying that it's not a scam. And even if there was some sort of scam element in that, say, she stole $20 from you, which she didn't, uh, she's doing that for a reason because she can't 
survive in another way. And so I don't think there's anything this kid could do to you in your house that would justify like not trusting her and not trying to care for her. Right. And I, I like I, I want to make it clear, letter writer, it's not like that we think you're a monster. Like you did right. a, a lot of good things in that moment. It was a bewildering situation. I, I get that you didn't necessarily have the presence of mind to think like, wait, let me get your name. Let me ask you a bunch of questions. Let me like follow up. Like you did good things. You let her in. You tried to help. You offered her food. All of that is to your credit. But the part of you that's like, I wonder what she did to deserve it. I wonder if she's scamming us. It's just so backwards. Like the idea that you two like uh, a, a couple with a place over your like a place to live. You have money to care for yourselves. You're not dependent on like capricious or possibly abusive parents for for staying not homeless to like think of yourself in such vulnerable terms of like, oh, I wonder if we're being scammed is such a weird misunderstanding of the power dynamics when like a homeless 13 year old scared child shows up at your door that I'm a little like question the part of your mind that worried she was quote unquote scamming you because right. the, you had no reason to think that nothing about this like scared child who was afraid to like who apologized for asking to use your phone put you in any danger so let that one go Right. So to this ending of this question, which is what could or should we have done differently, it actually doesn't sound like they did anything wrong in the moment. You know, the things that we have issue with are the thoughts that they're maybe having. But I think that their behavior was actually very appropriate and yeah. letting her come in and use the phone and use the bathroom and offering her food and water. That's all very appropriate. Right. If something like this happened again, so you saw her again, I have the same advice that I did for actually several of these questions, which is, can you look up resources to offer her? Right. Because I'm not going to say you should take her in as your own child, but maybe there is a, you know, youth shelter or other sort of resource that you could have on hand next time, you know, God forbid, an abused 13-year-old shows up at your house. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think it's a great idea to be prepared. Like, look up a couple of numbers of, like, a local LGBT community center, a local, like, mm -hmm. teen shelter, resources that you could have on hand if she shows up again. And again, just, like, give her the option. And, you know, even if this kid's not, like, LGBT, like, if, if they're like a teen in need of housing, like that's going to be a good resource for her regardless. Right. Um, uh, I, I think it was totally like appropriate to like when she said, I have a friend I'm going to be able to stay with, not to say like, no, I'm going to like fucking find your parents or call the cops. Right. Like that's an appropriate level to like let her go. I don't know why she called her other friend for first. Probably that other friend was her first choice. Probably there was a reason that she was leaving the person in the complex as kind of a last resort because it wasn't mm -hmm. as good of an option. That's just not information you have. So I, I, I wouldn't recommend spending too much time worrying about it. Again, I get why this has been on your mind a lot. I really do. I get why you have felt distressed. I would be distressed if a 13-year-old in that situation showed up in my house and I would absolutely afterwards second guess myself and worry I hadn't done enough or um, that there was something I had neglected to do or, you know, it's just a sad situation. You don't at present have anything to go on but you can be ready and available she at least knows that you're there if she if she needs to knock on somebody else's door again but she's also going to have other people and resources in her life that she's hopefully turning to right now um and so that is my hope is that she has like talked to a school counselor or gone to a trusted friend's house and like talked to their parents and um that she is getting the help that she needs you did good Absolutely. And I think that that is one more thing you can do is if something like this happens is to say, you're welcome to come back if you need 
help in some way that we can offer. If you need a phone, if you need a bathroom, if you need a snack, like you are welcome to come here. That is a very small thing you can do and not pressure her into it in any means because you're just another adult that she can't necessarily trust, but just have the offer out there for when her friend's not picking up the phone and she doesn't have anywhere else to go. Which is, again, hopefully like a a tiny, you know, hopefully it doesn't come up, but if it does, hopefully it is a small stepping stone into getting sustainable resources. I don't think that's a sustainable option, but, you know. Yeah. Huh. Well, Molly, we have had some uh, thorny thickets that we've had to pass through, uh, and and yet I think we we have come through to the other side in one piece. Absolutely. Uh, well, when I, these questions came in, I thought, oh no, I can't I can't help with any of these. These are too nuanced, and you really made me feel like I could pretend to give some good advice. So thank you for having me. Good. I'm glad to hear <laughs> I was able to flatten some of the nuance. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just I think I didn't know where to start on a lot of things and you did because it is your actual job and a thing you do very well. Well, thank you. I, I really, really appreciate your help on all of these. And I hope that we get to have you back on the show again sometime. Yes, anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. If your advice is to throw the whole man out, I will absolutely co-sign on throwing the whole man out. You know, and I mean, like, it's not that I'm not compassionate here. I just think that what you're experiencing right now is a sign that you have a pretty unhealthy relationship with this guy that just because there wasn't a lot of shouting or open disagreement, you thought, oh, this is pretty good. But, like, it sounds like a lot of what you thought of as maybe peaceful connection was, in fact, unspoken ignored issues and like going along to get along and that doesn't mean that like it was all a lie and you two never had a good time together it just means that if what you want is to like build a deeper foundation together and his response to that is shut up leave me alone i've got a plan by the way i might want you to like pay for my lifestyle i I think that's really time to think about cutting bait To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.